As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. While trouble and anguish have found us out, your commandments are our delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever, so we pray that you would give us understanding that we may live. With our whole hearts we cry, answer us, O Lord, and we will keep your statutes. We call to you, save us that we may observe your testimonies, and hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. So on page 163 of many of the Pew Bibles between the books of John and Romans, the book of Acts. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 6 and the first seven verses as we have the privilege of witnessing the ordination and installation of deacons this morning. We thought we would think about this passage that introduces this concept of servants in the church in Acts chapter 6. And so we just want to read the first seven verses of these men that were chosen to serve And think about this in light of what's happening today in our own congregation. So Acts chapter 6, beginning our reading at verse 1 and reading through verse 7. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Porchorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Thus far the reading of God's word May he bless it to us. Uh, Well, this is a wonderful thing we have happening today in our midst to have the ordination of men to serve as the office of deacon. We have men that serve uh, long-standing roles in these offices, so we are not ordaining officers all that often. So when we do it, it's a privilege to to see it done and to meditate on what it means for the church and to think that this goes back to the early church, to recognizing uh, the work of the apostles in, in serving the church and recognizing that a specific group of men needed to be set aside uh, to do the work of ministering to the local needs of the congregation. And if we study these men and we study this office of deacon, we understand that what's happening here in, in Acts 6 is the beginning of the office. Sometimes these seven servers, as they're called here, um, are referred to as proto-deacons. Um, because they function a little differently than deacons will come to function in the life of the local church. Theirs was also something of a preaching ministry. But even in this, we can see the importance of the work of the church in all of the kinds of things the church does, not just in ministering the Word of God to the people of God, but also in this high calling of serving tables. And that's how we should think of this calling to serve tables, as a high calling 
uh, that God has called men to do to provide for the needs of his people. And we can learn a lot about the church and about the offices of the church from what we read in this passage. Uh, This passage teaches us the nature of the church and the necessity of office bearers for the welfare of the church. And in, in this passage in particular, we see how the church experienced growing pains and how God made a gracious, a gracious provision for his church in raising up these men to serve them and the glorious purpose that was served by them. And that's how we want to think about this passage together today. Uh, the growing pains, the gracious provision, and the glorious purpose. Uh, now, the first two points are longer than the last, so I don't want to get to my last point and have you despairing on me. Uh, so the last point will be shorter than the other two, but I think it's important to see how this work has this, grac- this gracious provision, has this glorious purpose in the life of God's people. Uh, but it's a time of growing pains in the church, isn't it? That's how this passage starts. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, that's always an exciting time in the church to see new people coming in, to see the church getting fuller and fuller, to see more people coming to the Lord. It's an exciting time in the life of any church. But it also brings with it challenges, doesn't it? Um, As you grow in number, what does that mean? You grow in spiritual needs that need to be met. You grow in people that you need to shepherd, that you need to minister to as a church. It brings new people in, and so that changes the culture of the church. Um, You can imagine if you started off as this little group of disciples, you would get a lot of the apostles' attention, and as that group grew, you got less attention, different people come in. It it changes the dynamic of the church, doesn't it, Uh, when the church is growing? So it's an exciting time in the life of the church, but it's also a really challenging time uh, because this growth in numbers means a growth in needs, and we see some of those needs growing in the church and causing problems here. Um, As that church grows, as more people are being brought in, it exposes the church to a bunch of different cultures coming in, and there's a clash of cultures that's happening here in the church between um, the Hellenists, we're told, and the Hebrews. Um, We have to remember that the old covenant church was not multicultural. It was not multiracial. It was a a Jewish church. And in order to become part of the church, you really had to be brought in to the Jewish community. Um, So you could have people that would come in from the outside, people we can think back through the Bible, people like Rahab, who was a Canaanite, who came in to the people of God, or Ruth, who was a Moabite, who came in to the people of God. But you still had to come in and be part of that group. And what's happening in the New Testament? Well, Jesus is tearing down those old divisions. It's not a church defined by one nation and one people. It's now a church of every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And as all those different cultures come together, it creates what one person has called cultural friction. A friction between these two groups of people. Now, who are these two groups of people? We kind of need to understand what is the nature of the friction. Is this a Jew and Gentile problem that the early church experienced? Well, no, that's not actually these two groups of people. They're both ethnically Jewish. Uh, The Hellenists and the Hebrews are both ethnically Jewish. But the Hebrews are Jewish people who've come from the geographic region of Israel. They're people from Jerusalem. They're people from Judea. They grew up speaking Hebrew, Aramaic, going to synagogues where that was the principal language. That's who the Hebrews are, people from Jerusalem and Judea. 
um, they identify with more that, that Jewish culture that was typical of geographic Israel. Um, the Hellenists are a little different. They are also Jewish, but that's a way of talking about people who come from Greek-speaking areas of the world. Uh, they were people who would have lived in Greek areas, away from the Holy Land. They are people who would have gone to synagogue where it was spoken in Greek. And so even though they are both ethnically Jewish, they come from very different cultures. Uh, maybe you've, you've had that if you're an American traveling to a place where you are ethnically from, um, but they don't recognize you as being anything but American. Um, they don't recognize you as being part of their country. Um, you're part of another country. So you can be ethnically the same, but culturally very different. Um, and that's what's going on here. They're, they're ethnically all Jewish, but they're very different culturally, and the church has brought them together. And this clash of cultures is creating friction. I like what Dennis Johnson said commenting about this situation, he said, friction can heat people to the ignition point, producing misunderstandings, suspicion, prejudice, pride, anger, and even violence. Christ's church is no stranger to the heat of cultural friction, the friction that results when different kinds of people have contact with each other is an inevitable byproduct when churches try to be faithful to the Great Commission. A church that only touches our kind of people in language, culture, social status, and background is a shrunken distortion of Christ's holy Catholic universal church. The crucial question is, how will we handle the friction? That's what's going on here. They have this friction, and it's caused people to say, you know, there are certain people who are being favored in the daily distribution over other people. Um, certain people are getting more given to them in the daily distribution than other people are getting. That's the point of the second part of verse 1. A uh, complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Um, we know that many at this time in the church, many of the wealthier people in the church were selling property and other, and other things to give of their resources to the church so the church could distribute those things to the people in need, and there's this accusation that there's an imbalance in how things are being distributed. There's a sort of hometown bias for the, for the Hebrews to get the distribution. Now, Luke never tells us whether or not that's actually happening. He says there's a complaint, uh, but we don't know whether or not this is a true complaint um, or something that's just a perception on their part. Um, but it's clear that the 12 disciples have essentially been doing this, have been ministering this distribution, and when this complaint comes up, the question is going to be, what are they going to do about it? Um, and you can see how this wonderful expression of love and care and unity, gathering all this money to distribute to those in need, can become a source of division in the church, can be a source of trouble in the church. And so how are this, the, the disciples going to deal with this? Um, how are they going to deal with this? And they do so by making a really gracious provision for the church. If we think about it, it's a provision for the church that is really a model of patience, of meekness, of humility on the part of the disciples in being willing to raise up different men to do this work to make sure that the work is being done. And in their patience and in their, weak, in their meekness and in their humility, we see a picture of our Lord 
Jesus Christ in how they handle things. Because the 12 could easily have reacted with resentment when their work is being called into question. If we had been going through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, we could get a little sense of all the work that these men have been doing for the sake of the church. We don't have time this morning. Maybe you're afraid we will. We're not going to go through the whole book. But if you would turn back with me to chapter 4, we could get a little sense of some of the work that these men have been doing. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. An example of their ministry and their charity. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Um, So great work is being done for them, right? Great grace is going out. Great work is being done. They are making sure that no one's in need by the way they are distributing things. They're examples of ministry. They're examples of charity or turn over to chapter 5 verses 12 through 16 and read about all the healing work they had done amongst people. Um, Now many signs and wonders, verse 12 of chapter 5, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them but the people held them in high esteem and more than ever believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Here are men that have shown great grace in preaching the word, great work in distributing to those in need, great miracles of healing, healing people who are sick, driving out demons. This is the work that they've done. And one more example from later in chapter 5, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Uh, These are men who not only labored wonderfully for the people of God, but suffered for it, were beaten for it, had people who held them in high esteem but were unwilling to join them. And think of all the work that these men had done, and then for someone to come and complain that the, the daily distribution is not being handed out evenly. Um, how might one of us react in that situation if we've been doing all that work and hear that complaint? I think many of us would not have reacted with the grace and the meekness and the patience and the humility with which the disciples react. Uh, they don't resent this accusation being brought to them. Uh, they respond by making provision, a wise plan for the good of the people and for the glory of the Lord. 
they set about to make sure that God's people are being taken care of. And in this they model the Lord whom they serve. Remember our Lord's words in Mark chapter 10, verses 43 through 45. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, He had said that to these men when they were all trying to fight for who was number one. And there's a great work of grace on them, isn't there? That now they're all just saying, how can we serve the people of God? They don't look to what they've already done and see a source of resentment there. They look at what needs to be done for the good of the people and for the glory of the Lord. Um, The church has never had such faithful, powerful leaders as the apostles, uh, animated by the power of the Holy Spirit to serve. And even these men who were given these great resources by the Holy Spirit uh, are not above making changes to how things are going for the good of Christ's sheep and for the glory of his name. Um, they, they walk the walk of what they preached. Uh, Peter would tell people in 1 Peter four ten and 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What did these men realize? They realized that God's glory is the most important thing. Um, The good of God's people is more important. They recognize their own limits. Uh, We all have limits. We have gifts we've been given. We're to use them to serve the Lord, but not all of us can do everything. And God knows that we have limits, and that's why God has given us several offices in the church and not expected any one of us to do everything. Um, And that's what the provision that the disciples make here. They recognize their own limits. They cannot do themselves all the service that God's people need done for them. And so they make provision to raise up people who can serve. And that's why they say what they say in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I don't know how that hits your ear. Um, It can almost sound like they're saying, that work is beneath me. I stand up here, I wear the robe, I have this, I'm very important. I can't be out doing that, right? That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is this is very important and that is very important. And we can't give up one important thing to do another important thing. We don't want to make a a separation like that where we are going to have to give up doing what we are doing to do the other thing that's important to have done. It's not because they're saying it's a lesser calling, it's because it is a high calling, Um, We have a a sense in our churches that we have three offices, but they all have equal importance. They have different functions in the church, but they all have equal importance. We don't think of the ministers as the highest, and then the elders, and then the deacons. Um, Sometimes people can even talk that way. Oh, he's been a deacon for a while, maybe he's ready to be promoted to elder. That's not how we should think about these things. They're all high offices. This is a high calling to serve. 
And we just know that because what would, what would our Lord say? He came to serve. And that was the highest calling that's ever been given for him to come and to serve us by laying his life down as a ransom for many. Um, and so this is a high calling. Uh, they're recognizing that these also are ministers. It's interesting that the same root word that's used by Luke here to talk about serving tables and the service of the word share the same root. They are both service actions. It's just that one is serving tables while another is serving the, Lord, the word of the Lord. Um, they are both service ministries. Um, we are appointed by God to minister in different ways. Uh, you seminarians remember that when you, be, when you go into the ministry. You have not been appointed to be the head of everything. You've been appointed to be a servant, to serve the Lord's people by bringing, him the word, by bringing them the word in public and in private and in sometimes with tears. Um, you are to be a servant. That's what God's people need us, to be servants as officers of the church. And that's what the disciples do here. They say we need to appoint ministers who will minister the work of charity to the people of God, who will attend to their material and physical needs so that the others can attend to the ministry of the word and serve the hunger and spiritual thirst of the people of God by bringing them the word. And that's really what all of God's people are called to do. Um, We are all officers in the church. You can be a minister, you can be an elder, you can be a deacon, or you can hold the general office of believer, but we all have offices in the church. None of us can say that we don't have a role to play in the church of God. All of you who believe, if you never hold an office in the church, hold the general office of believer. And we'll see that in our form for the ordination of deacons. Um, the form will charge them to do their office in Christ's name. And then all of you will be charged as believers to do your office, which is to pray for them, which is to supply them with the means to minister the mercy and the needs of the people of God, to help them to do their work. There's no one who doesn't have a role in the church. Maybe I've shared this with you before, but there are sometimes you meet with older saints in the church, sometimes people who are shut in, and they will say, you know, I, don't, I just can't contribute anything to the church. When I was younger, I used to be able to do things, but now I'm home, I'm, I can't get out, I can't do things, and I just really don't feel like I have a role in the church. Um, and I always try to encourage them to say, the best thing you can do for the church is pray. And there's no one who can't pray where they are. There's no one who does not have the ability to pray. If you look in our church order, the first duty of every office bearer is to continue in prayer. And that's the first duty of every general officer in the church who holds the office of believer, to continue in prayer for the people of God. Um, We can all do that using that gift, and it's the best thing we can do. Never say, well, all I can do is pray. That's the best thing you can do. And do that to the glory of God and for the good of the people of God. Uh, No one here is without a gift, without an office, without a responsibility um, to use the varied grace, as Peter said, that God has given and to be good stewards of that grace for his glory and the good of his people. And so the 12 call the church together and say, we want to establish these men who will be servants to serve you in your material needs, and we're going to choose them from among you. 
Um, choose from among you the stewards, the servers, to serve God's people. Um, and the church is to choose them based on the criteria that's given to them by the apostles. And they are to look for men of certain qualifications. Um, and what are those qualifications? They are to be from among you. They are to be believers from the local congregation. They are to be men of good repute, uh, men who have good reputations in the church, that the congregation can have confidence in entrusting these things to these men. Uh, they should be men that are full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, what does it mean that they are full of the Holy Spirit? Uh, well, that they show that they live God-honoring Christian lives. They show evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in them. There is faith and love and good works being produced in them. The fruit of the Spirit is evidenced in them. We are not looking for perfect Christians. If we were looking for perfect Christians, we wouldn't have ministers or elders or deacons. We're not looking for perfect Christians. We're looking for faithful Christians. That's what it means that they are filled with the Holy Spirit and that they are filled with wisdom. A lot of what officers in the church need to do is wisdom. Uh, they need to know how to reach the best ends by the best means in the best way with the necessary tact to do what God has called them to do. They need to have wisdom. And so the church will choose them and the 12 will appoint them. See the wisdom of this plan. Right? It brings the whole church into this decision just as we still do these things today. Right? We find men of the qualifications listed in Scripture. We put them before the congregation. The congregation chooses them. Um, it's still the way we do things today. And so this congregation here in Acts 6 chooses these seven men. Now, what's really interesting is Luke does not tell us who they are in terms of are they Hellenists or are they Hebrews. That might be kind of interesting to know, right, given the controversy in the church, how the church picks the people that they pick. But we're not given much detail about these men. Their names are such that they don't reveal to us exactly who they are. Um, we don't know if they're Greek or if they're Hebrew by their names. In fact, Luke only gives us any details about two of them. The first one he mentions and the last one he mentions. Now, the first one he mentions is Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Um, Stephen is a man who is known for having a robust, very strong faith. And this will become clear in the next chapter as he speaks and dies for the faith he professes in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be martyred in the next chapter. Uh, Stephen is a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. The only other person, interestingly, we're given any information about is Nicholas. The last of the seven listed here, how is he described at the end of verse 5? Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And that's an interesting piece of information, uh, not just because, you know, maybe it's, there are two Nicholases in the class, and so there's Nicholas A and Nicholas B, and this is how they know Nicholas B. He's a proselyte from Antioch. Is that what's going on here? No, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste words, does he? If these details are given, it's given for a purpose. And what is the purpose here? It's to celebrate the fact that, you know, Nicholas, he's really a Gentile. Nicholas is a Gentile Christian. He's a proselyte from Antioch, which means he was a Gentile who converted to Judaism, 
and was circumcised and received into the Jewish church. And then he was converted under the ministry of the gospel to the service of Christ and became a Christian. But that's what it means that he's a proselyte from Antioch. He's not a Hebrew in any sense. He's not a Hellenistic Jew. He's not a Hebrew Jew. He's not from the Jewish community really at all. He's a Gentile. And yet the church chooses him to serve. And I think what Luke is, is demonstrating for us and foreshadowing for us is the way the Lord is breaking down barriers. The way the Lord is actually tearing down the dividing wall that's between Jew and Gentile. Because for this important work that's being done among primarily Jewish Christians in the church, the church chooses a Gentile to serve them. Chooses a Gentile and recognizes this Gentile as one who is filled with the Holy Spirit who is filled with wisdom, who has a good reputation, and who is among them. It's a wonderful testimony to how the Lord is bringing his church together and how that pattern will continue in the book of Acts as they see the Holy Spirit going into even Gentiles and tearing down that wall between Jew and Gentile, building a church that is truly from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Antioch will be a very special place in the book of Acts. Um, Antioch will be a place where the first Gentile church is mentioned in Acts 11. It's also the place that will be the sending point of Paul's mission to the West in Acts chapter 13, 1 through 3. And so this is a wonderful foreshadowing of what the Lord is doing by the sending of his spirit, by the work of the gospel, to bring people together from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so they take these men and they ordain and install these men to serve the church, and the needs of God's people are provided. And ultimately, who is the one who is providing what they need? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He has raised up men to meet the need that his people are facing in the world. He raised up apostles to take the word. He raises up these seven servers to serve the needs of his church. He's still raising up pastors, elders, and deacons. In our Sunday school hour, we're going to reflect a little bit on, on the form of subscription that the, that the deacons are going to come up and sign here as part of their ordination. And we're going to think about the fact that this is something that office bearers have been doing in the Reformed churches for over 450 years, have been promising to uphold the doctrine that's taught in the Word of God. Um, it's a long history, and what that testifies to is not just God has been faithful to our church in our, in our family tree, but also that He's continued to do what He's always been doing in ages past, raising up pastors and elders and deacons to serve His people. And He's still doing that today. We shouldn't forget or, or overlook the fact that these men have been provided to us by the Lord of the church to serve our needs. I have every confidence these men will not forget it, uh, but let's not forget it either to thank God for what he's done in the life of our congregation. And why does God do this? He does this for a glorious purpose. And that's what we see happening at the end of the word. What, what practical effect does it have the ordination of these servers? Uh, well, much in every way, right? In making sure that everyone is doing their work, everyone is using the gifts that God has given to do. What happens to the church 
as a result. It's a wonderful statement there in verse 7, isn't it? And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Um, there's great work that's being done by this. And why? what is the glorious purpose that God accomplishes through this, this wise pattern by these apostles, this wise decision to raise up this men? Well, there's a glorious purpose. It's that the word would increase and that the church would grow. It's one of these lovely expressions that comes up again and again in the book of Acts, that the word increased. The word has a power of its own, right? That's not dependent on the people who preach it, not dependent on the people who deliver it. It has its own power, right? And that's why you have confidence as a preacher to know if I just let the word of God go and get out of the way of the word of God, it'll do something and something wonderful. The word will increase, and what does that mean when Luke says the word increase? We can think of it in two simple ways. It means that the word goes out and that the word grows up. Think of that when you read that the word increases. What does it mean? It goes out and it grows up. The word increases, it goes out to more people who have not heard it before. And that's our prayer, isn't it, always? That the word might go out and reach people that it's not reached before. That it might go out into the world that people would hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and have life in his name. That's our hope, that the word would go out. And that when it goes out to people, it would grow up in their lives. That it would increase in them. Increase in them faith. Increase in them love for God and for one another. Increase in them hope of the glory that awaits the people of God. Increase in them the fruit of the Spirit that testifies to the work of the Spirit that's present in the lives of God's people. We want to see the Word go out and we want to see the Word grow up. And, and beautifully, Luke tells us here, that's exactly what happened. The Word went out, the Word increased, and when the Word increased, the church grows. That's what we want to see, the growth of the church, not just in numbers, but in grace, in, in being who God has called us to be. And that's what they saw. The word continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Um, we can't have that happen if the word doesn't go out and the word doesn't grow up. The word is dependent on everything. We, everything else we do is dependent on the word, on the word increasing. So if you want to know what to pray for in the general office of a believer, that's the first thing to pray for, that the word would increase, that it would go out into the world and that it would grow up in us and in those around us. Um, and we're told something wonderful about this church growth, not just that it grows, but who comes in. You notice that at the end of the passage, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's so important, especially for the church in Jerusalem, for the priests to come to faith. Those who would have been probably former enemies and some of the staunchest opponents of what Christianity was doing, they come to believe. 
they come to join the church. That's so important because remember the accusation that was raised against Jesus uh, by the religious leaders in John 7, 48. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Have anyone you should listen to believed in him? How about a great number of the priests? And it's speculation, we don't know for sure, but I think it's right. A number of commentators have said, surely among this great group of priests that joins the church are some of the priests who are ministering in the temple on Good Friday and who saw the veil torn from top to bottom at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who could bear witness to the truth of the effect of the death of the Son of God as they ministered to bear witness And what a blessing it would have been to have people who had served as priests who knew how to love their neighbor, who knew the truth of God's word and can bring it to bear in a whole new way, understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and who could make those Old Testament connections. What a beautiful thing God does in building his church in this way. And this is a growth that will just continue. If we went on in the, in the book of Acts, we would see what was beautifully summarized here. Luke traces the skillful strategy of the all-wise God who solved a food problem among Jewish Christians in Jerusalem in a way that spread the word of Jesus out from Jerusalem, north to Samaria, west to the coastal towns, northeast to Damascus, northwest to Antioch, and on across the great sea to distant lands at the end of the earth. The Lord will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the Lord is still providing for us as we are here so many years and so many miles from where they were. To him be the glory and the dominion now and forevermore. And all God's people said, amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are so good to us, that you have provided for our most desperate need by the sacrifice of your son on the cross that he has set us free from the tyranny of the devil but that you continue to provide for all of our needs that you are a God who provides for spiritual need but also for daily bread and so we thank you for caring for us in such a wonderful way raising up men who faithfully minister to us the word of God who shepherd us and discipline us and also who serve tables who do the important work of charity and ministering to our needs. And as we now go to appoint new men to this service, Lord, we pray your blessing upon them and upon your church, that they would be a blessing to us, that we would continue to uphold them by our prayers, and that we would glorify your name for your wonderful provision to us. Hear us and help us in these things, we pray, for we ask them in Jesus' precious name. Amen.